Well, good morning. If you enjoyed that opening video, welcome to Nona Church. If you did not enjoy that video, welcome to Third Baptist Church of the Nazarene, uh, Mount of Olives, AME Community Fellowship. We're so glad that you're here with us. Hey, real quick, let's welcome everybody online who's with us today. We're so glad to have you in the house. Thanks so much for being with us. Hey, my name's Colin. I serve as the lead pastor here at Nona, and we are really excited to kick off a brand new series today titled Triggered, Jesus, Politics, and the Church. If there's any place in our culture today where we're seeing people get triggered, that word to be triggered means to, to see something or experience something that creates a kind of emotional reaction inside of you. If there's any place we're experiencing that in our culture right now, it would be in our political climate. Give me a good amen if you agree with me in, on, on that one, right? Amen. There's no doubt that what we see in the rhetoric online, what we see in conversations, what's happening in our homes, that the political moment that we find ourselves in, it is filled with a lot of different emotion. And so what I want to do real quick before we jump into the series today is just give you a brief disclaimer, okay, what this series is not about. Uh, this series is not about telling you uh, or influencing voting day. This series is to inspire you to live like Jesus every day. And so everybody can take a deep breath and calm down. We're not going to get super political in this series talking about who you should vote for or why you should vote a certain way. This is more so a conversation about how do we relate to one another in the midst of this moment in every single moment. A second kind of disclaimer I have for you that I think is important for you uh, to know just a little bit about me. Um, I am a political scientist by training. So my background and one of my degrees and focuses uh, kind of in my educational formational time uh, is, as it pertains to politics uh, and, and the science behind it, why people act the way they act, why they communicate the way that they do, uh, and even the history of how politics has framed itself out in our country and nation. I think that's important for you to know as we go into this, because this is really an intersection of multiple disciplines in my life coming together over the next couple of weeks. On top of that, I have another confession to make that I'm not sure is a good thing or a bad thing, but it's this reality, that in 2006, when I was a senior in high school, um, I was uh, the national champion for congressional de debate in our, in our country. And so I was the number one ranked de debater uh, in uh, the U.S. at that time, uh, which is really not something that I, I talk a lot about because no one likes to brag about how nerdy they were in high school, all right? Uh, so that's kind of my background. So, so this is important because as I approach the Scripture and pretty much every aspect of my time when I, when I read the Scriptures, I approach it with that background and that training. I, I've grown up in an environment where I've had to be be able to argue a particular topic from both sides of the argument with as much passion as possible, to, to put myself in a position I may not even agree with personally and bring my best energy and effort to cover it, which, which really impacts the way that I look at the scripture, because it, it means that, that I don't tend to often uh, see things just one way, but I see it from a multiplicity of perspectives, which might actually be frustrating for you sometimes because you just want an answer, and I'm not going to give you an answer. Here's the reality. Life is more complex, usually, than right or wrong, black or white. There is more nuance to our day-to-day -day life. And so as we get into this series, give me a big head nod if you understand where we're going and how we're going to approach this. This is not about who you should vote for. It's about how we ought to live as people. Quick raise of hands. How many of us are a little bit nervous right now? Great. Just me. All right. We're going to have a great time in uh, this series. I want to start off by asking this question. 
Who does God want to win on November 3rd? Who does God want to win on November 3rd? All right, this one we can all participate in. How many of you know who you want to win on November 3rd? Let me go ahead and see it, right? Yeah, we all have a sense of who we want to win on November 3rd, which begs the question, who does God want to win? Well, I actually have the answer. You don't have to wait until November 3rd. I'm going to tell you right now, based upon all of my education and my background, who's going to win on November 3rd. The answer is, ladies and gentlemen... The church. God wants the church to win on November 3rd. In fact, Jesus was quite a political man. In fact, in John chapter 18, as he's heading towards the cross on our behalf, um, Pilate uh, interacts with him, and there's a political moment even in this text. In John chapter 18, verse 33 to 36, it reads this way. Pilate went back into the praetorium. He summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Asking him, are you a political opponent? Are you saying this on your own, Jesus asked, or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, pay attention to this, underline it in your Bibles. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Let me say that again. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now, my kingdom is not of this realm. Hear me today. If you follow Jesus, your primary allegiance is not to a flag. It's not to a nation, and it is not to a candidate. Your primary allegiance is to King Jesus. How many of us agree with that today? Do you believe that to be true? We want to be those people in this time in age. Jesus makes it even firmer in John chapter 17. Right before John 18, he's praying to his father, and he's actually praying this beautiful prayer about unity. And as he's praying about the future church, thinking about you and I, thinking about the, the, the global church and what it will look like as the people of God continue to live out his mission in the world, he says this in John chapter 17. He says, I am not, verse 15, praying that you take them out of the world, so this is why we need to realize that we have a responsibility to participate in the world today. Look what he says, though. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are, say this phrase with me, not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Would you say this with me? Say, I am not of this world. Say, I am not of this world. I belong to a better kingdom. That's the approach that we need to have in this political season. Because here's what I need you to hear me say. The enemy doesn't want to win an election. The enemy wants the church to lose its unity. And what I'm seeing right now in our cultural moment is is really the beginning pieces of the fraying of church communities across our country, losing unity over an election when Jesus prayed for our unity despite whatever might be happening in the world. We've got to remember who we belong to, what identity is actually ours, and walk together as the people of God. So over the next few weeks, we're going to answer three questions. Really, to, this is one big sermon that I don't have an hour and a half to preach, so we're chopping it up into three different messages. But we're going to answer these three questions. How do we relate to one another in this political climate? How do we participate in this political climate? 
And how do we respond to the outcomes on November 3rd? My hope is that the next three weeks will be a guide to all of us that will be helpful for us as we walk through these times. So today, let's tackle the first question. How do we relate to one another in this political climate? And to set up our time, I want to play a quick game that's going to help illustrate the larger point that we'll be talking about today. It's a game called This or That, and I need your help. Audience participation is of utmost importance. True online as well. Do your best. Throw your hand up online and let me know which one it is. Fill it out in the comments in the chats. I need you to make a decision and pick a team, all right? Give me a head nod if you're ready. Here's the first one, all right? Is the correct pronunciation Coke or pop? If it's Coke, go ahead and say Coke. Let me see Coke. All right, pop. Any pop people in the room? You're in the wrong state. All right, here's the next one, all right? Here we go. Raise of hands, make some noise, cheer, whatever you want to do. Apple or Android? Where are my Apple people at? All right, where are my Android people at? All right, awesome. Here we go. Moe's or Chipotle? Moe's people? Okay, man, all right. I think I know who's winning this one. Chipotle people? All right, okay. Uh, last one, here we go. Dogs or cats? Uh, I'm kidding, it's just dogs. All right, so, so let's go. <laughs> so hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. It is one thing to disagree about our soda or pop preferences. It's another thing, though, isn't it, to disagree on heavier things. Is it defund the police or back the blue? Is it Trump or Biden? Is it Republicans or Democrats? These are the weightier questions that are in play. And what we just did was play a game called this or that. We live in a either-or world right now. In fact, that's the title of today's message, The Way of Jesus in an Either-Or World. I mean, are you feeling that right now? We live in a culture right now and in a moment right now where you need to pick a team and you need to decide who you're for and who you're against. But this either-or world, it is destroying and dividing us. In fact, it is killing us in significant ways. Our souls are eroding. Marriages are falling apart right now because of this political climate. Families have decided not to talk to each other anymore based upon who they're voting for. We've seen this happen in multiple places. The most important frameworks of unity in our culture are coming apart at the seams because we have embraced an either-or culture, and world. And it's destroying us. One author by the name of David French has this to note about where we are in our political climate. He says this, it's time for Americans to wake up to a fundamental reality. The continued unity of the United States of America cannot be guaranteed. At this moment in history, there is not a single important cultural, religious, political, or social force that is pulling Americans together more than it is pushing us apart. In fact, some people have said that uh, sociologically speaking, our nation has never been more divided now than it has been since the Civil War. This is the climate that you and I are a part of. An either-or world is destroying us. But secondly, you need to know this. An either-or world is also impacting our character and a significant sign of immaturity. Henry Cloud is a, a writer, a prolific writer, who talks a lot about this concept and what he calls the good or bad split. And he says this, and I think it's so poignant. 
He says, it is the tendency for a person to experience themselves, others, or the world as either all good or all bad. Does that sound like the political ads that you're watching right now? Yeah? Okay. It is the hallmark of immature formation. Underline that word. Keep that word in your mind. Immature formation. For mature functioning, we cannot operate well in seeing the world, here's our phrase, in either or terms. It is like trying to play tennis with only a forehand and not a backhand. There are just a lot of shots you cannot get to. It is frustrating to work with or be in a relationship with someone who cannot tolerate gray, and pay attention to this, or any degree of complexity that challenges their rigid thinking. Does that not describe the climate that we're in today? So, so hear me clearly today. Immaturity is marked by either-or thinking. So you might be a bit older and consider yourself mature, but if you're living in a world that is marked by either-or thinking, you may actually be, to some degree, emotionally underdeveloped. Maturity, however, is marked by the better way of Jesus. And let's remember this, that Jesus' desire for us, we see this in Ephesians chapter 4, is that we would grow into maturity. That our responsibility as followers of Jesus are to leave childish ways behind and step into the greater picture of what it means to be adults. Adults in the way that we live, adults in the way that we think, adults in the way that we worship. There is a trajectory of maturity that is expected of all of us. And in this political climate, people are appealing to our most immature tendencies to try to influence us on how to vote, how to think, and how to act. And Jesus says, not so with you, not so with the church. And in either or world, you'll see this over and over again through the scriptures, Jesus embraced and. The reality is Jesus offers a better way than the either or world. And it involves the word and. So here's a reminder. As we go through this series, I want to remind you uh, that this is not about my opinion. Our model is Jesus and our guide is scripture. Our model is Jesus, and our guide is Scripture. And man, when I walk through the New Testament, when I read the Scriptures from cover to cover, I see a God, and I see a God reflected in the person of Jesus, image to us in the person, character, and nature of Jesus that finds a way over and over and over again in an either-or world to embrace the better way of the kingdom. See, the way of the kingdom of earth is either-or. The way of the kingdom of God is, it's far more nuanced and beautiful than that. So today, I want to focus in on one verse in Scripture to give you a picture of the character and nature of God. And then we're going to look at another text in the same book that teaches us how Jesus actually put this on demonstration for us. So if you have your Bible, go to John chapter 1 and then also turn to John chapter 8. Have that prepared and ready to go. Those are the two places that we'll be. In John chapter 1, we find this beautiful uh, chapter where Jesus uh, is explained to us by his best friend John the Baptist. And where Matthew and Luke start their first chapters of the gospel accounts of Jesus, kind of giving us a, a history of his heritage, his lineage, if you will, John decides to do something completely different. You'll, you'll find that John chapter 1, verse 1, starts with these three words, in the beginning. 
And John is pattering in these three words in the beginning, the same words that are started in the beginning of the story of Scripture in Genesis when it says, in the beginning. Here's what John is trying to connect for us, that the person of Jesus is God, that, that he was at the beginning, that when we see Jesus on display in the Scriptures, we're seeing the character and the nature and the heart of God. This is very important. Because it means that what Jesus does is a perfect reflection of who God is. So in John chapter 1, uh, John's going to give us a numerous pictures of the beauty and the grandeur and the majesty and the, the beauty of God in the person of Christ. And then we get to verse 14, and my goodness, he lays out for us a picture of the character of God that we cannot miss. He says this in John chapter 1, verse 14. He said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, meaning God incarnates. He comes to us through the person of Christ, and he lives among us. We observed his glory, meaning we saw the brilliance and splendor of God, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace. What's our word here? Let's say it together. One, two, three. Full of grace, full of grace and truth. Jesus, full. That word full means complete. Jesus, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. This is who Jesus is, and this is the character and nature of your creator and king, our heavenly father. God is full, perfect and complete. Grace and and truth. So here's the big idea. Write it down in your notes. We need grace and truth in an either-or world. We need grace and truth in an either-or world. Here's what grace is. Grace is unmerited, unconditional love, and truth is unashamed honesty. Now, grace people tend to be focused on feelings, and truth people tend to be focused on facts. If I could for you just for a moment kind of give you a continuum, uh, if grace is over here and truth is over here, you and I fall somewhere along that category, right? Some of us are grace people. Difficult things happen in life. People hurt our feelings. We get upset, but then we let them go with what? With grace pretty quick, right? And some of us are truth people, right? If the speed limit is 45, minute, 45 miles an hour, you're driving 45 miles an hour, right? Some of you are like, well, I guess we're all grace people then if that's the case. <laughs> if you're wondering where you are on the grace and truth continuum, which is the question I'm asking you right now, where do you find yourself? Uh, know that, that you're not static. It's on a spectrum. Some of you guys are very much grace people when it comes to how you relate to your kids, but you're truth people when it comes to how you relate to your coworkers. If you're trying to figure out where you are and you're a parent, I find it interesting. Usually there's one parent who's grace-oriented a little bit more and one parent who's truth-oriented a little bit more. And if you're trying to figure out, well, which one am I, am I, ask yourself this question. Who do the kids come to ask to go do fun things? Who's the one who gets the request? That probably is an indicator of where you are. But right now, okay, knowing that Jesus is full of grace and truth, where do you tend to find yourself on the continuum? Are you more of a grace person or are you more of a truth person? 
Here's the problem. Where Jesus is full of grace and truth, our tendency is to be people who are full of grace or truth. And we need to become people that live in this moment, recognizing that it's not grace or truth, it's grace and truth. In fact, to, to go a little bit deeper, I want to, want to draw something out for you. It's called the grace and truth uh, grid, okay? And, and so it's going to look a little bit like this. All right, so some of us, we're going to call this grace right here. We're going to call this truth right here. Okay, some of us, some of us are high grace. We're high grace, okay? Um, we're high grace, but we're low on truth, okay? High grace, low truth. And when you're high grace, low truth, you tend to be somebody who's enabling. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Don't worry about it. You'll, kind of, you'll be okay. You guys get what I'm saying right here? For others of us, we tend to be people that are low on grace and low on truth. And these people tend to be passive. In this political moment, they're usually people that are marked by the question, oh, I don't really worry about politics. I just don't get into it. I don't watch the news. Low grace, low truth. For others of us, we're, we're high truth. We love the truth. We love the law. We love the letter of the law. And we tend to be low on grace. For people like us, we tend to be condemning. You'll know that you're this person if you've got friends that don't want to talk politics with you at all, all right? You know this if you're people get up to leave the dining room table and you say to yourself, why did you leave? I thought we were having a robust conversation. And then somebody leans over and says, no, you've been yelling for the last 30 minutes, all right? It's that kind of person. And then for some of us, this is the goal, this is the hope, is that we would be high grace and high truth people. And this would be marked by love. Now, here's the thing. Where have you been in this political climate. See, for those of us that have been high grace and, and low on truth, we've been enabling, and this is what it looks like. It looks like whenever you hear people criticize your political candidate, you don't like it at all. Like, can, can I just be honest with you for a minute? If you cannot criticize and critique the personality and policies of Donald Trump, you may have actually created an idol in your life. If you cannot criticize or critique the personality and policies of Joe Biden, you may have created an idol in your life because neither candidate has been sent to save us. And for too many of us, what I find is that we have a lot of grace for the candidate we're voting for and a lot of truth for the opposite side. And God would say, well, you've got an idol somewhere right in between. Can you be somebody who acknowledges the brokenness of the leader that you are supporting? For others of us, we've just kind of landed in the passive category. We're like, you know what? Here's my solution. I'm just not going to participate in the political environment at all. I'm not watching the news. I'm not going to have conversations about it. I'm not going to share what I believe or what is true. I'm just going to sit back and let things happen. Here's the problem with that. Nowhere in Scripture does Jesus give us the freedom to back out of engagement in the world. Did you know that? That our responsibility is to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. 
that we're supposed to be purveyors and communicators of truth, that we're supposed to speak on behalf of those that are experiencing oppression and pain, that injustice is our battle to fight and to wage war against. And so when you and I take the position of passivity, listen here, the only people that get to be passive when it comes to politics are those who have the privilege to not be impacted by politics itself. Who well, I'm preaching now, right? Because here's the deal. The only people that don't care what happens politically are those who are insulated from it. But politics matter because politics are policies that impact people. And every person is created in the image of God, which means I should care about what happens to my neighbor. And some of us are living on this truth side with our Facebook posts and the way that we're speaking. And we've denigrated Joe and Kamala and Donald and Mike, forgetting that these are people made in the image of God. And if we could look at what we've written, what we've said, how we've spoken, what we've mumbled, we would be mortified to recognize that level of vitriol exists within our hearts. But Jesus invites us to a better way. That it's not grace or truth. It's not truth or grace. It's grace and truth. And this, my friends, this model of living, this way of being is what gives us the ability to maintain unity in the midst of this political climate, to not lose our witnesses, which is what the enemy really wants for us anyway, but to experience the kindness and the grace of God even when we disagree. Did you know that it's okay to disagree? Give me a head nod if you knew that. It's okay to disagree. But you know that it's not okay to destroy one another in the process. Jesus invites us to a better way. So how does truth and grace play itself out, right? Jesus full of truth and grace. So if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 8. I want, I want to show you just one example. The scriptures are filled with them. But just one example where Jesus models grace and truth. He lives out both of these things at the same time. Chapter 8, verse 2, we find this story. At dawn, Jesus went to the temple again. And all the people were coming to him. So he sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees. So imagine this picture. Jesus is teaching and some very smart, educated men arrive. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Now, this is really important. John here is very, very clear to let us know the situation that's in play. This is not a woman who's allegedly uh, an adulteress. This isn't a woman who's allegedly broken the law. No, this is a woman who was caught in the act. Most likely, they've uh, set up a situation where they knew that this was going to happen. There was a tip that was given to them. They've arrived on the scene. There are witnesses who have seen what has gone on in this particular place or home. These men most likely raided the, the home at that time, grabbed her in the middle of the act, brought her in front of Jesus, most likely uh, in a position of shame, not covered, not in a position where anyone would ever want their daughter to be in. And in this moment, they bring this woman in front of Jesus, and they say this, teacher, again, appealing to the law, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. And look what they point to. They're going to point to truth in the law. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. 
So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. So the goal here is to try to trap Jesus. They're trying to put Jesus in an either-or situation, which is what your culture is trying to do to you too, put you in an either-or situation. They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. Now, now no one knows what Jesus was writing. Uh, Some people say that Jesus stooped down to the ground and he began writing out the law. Because, of course, it's from the finger of God that the law was written, if you go back to the Old Testament. Other people say that Jesus stoops down to the ground and he begins to write with his finger all of the sins of the scribes and Pharisees, all the secrets of the men that are there. He begins to write those down on the ground as well. Nobody knows what he writes. For all we know, he could have been picking the Sunday NFL picks. For all we know, we don't know what Jesus wrote on the ground. But we know that Jesus takes a moment to pause and to consider what's happening in this moment. The scribes and Pharisees are waiting on edge. And find in verse 7, when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to him, May the one without sin among you, they should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and he continued riding on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman. Can you imagine this scene A crowd begins to gather. The dust begins to swell up in the ground. Everyone begins to pick up rocks, ready to throw them at this woman because that's what truth says you should do. That's the law. Only he was left now with the woman. Jesus face to face with this woman, most likely scantily clad. No time to to make herself appear correct or appropriate in the shame-based culture of that day. Shame covering her emotionally and in her countenance. And Jesus stands up and he says, Women, woman, where are they? Has no one, what's the word? Condemned you? Whole lot of truth, not a lot of grace. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Now stop here. If Jesus stops the story there, that sounds like a whole lot of high grace, low amounts of truth, doesn't it? That would be enabling. Hey, girl, it's okay. We all got our things. You do you. Is that how Jesus ends the story, though? He says, no. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, what? Do not sin anymore. Jesus models high grace and high truth. He calls sin, sin. That's the truth. And he gives her grace, a highest amount of grace, because that is the call of love. Grace and truth. Not grace or truth. Hear me, truth without grace always leads to condemnation. That's why some of you growing up in the environments that you've been in and the communities that you've been part of, I think about the words of Rich Velotis that come to mind who actually inspired this this graphic right here. Rich has this great line where he says, Jesus might be in your heart, but grandpa is still in your bones. For some of you, you grew up in homes 
had a whole lot of truth, not a whole lot of grace, and you live with condemnation. And you bring that to your relationships. And it's in your rhetoric. And you even resonate sometimes when you see people say, well, I'm just going to speak the truth and I'm just going to say it like it is. And if you don't like it, who cares? I'll tell you who cares. God cares. God cares how we speak. God cares how we love. God cares how we communicate. It is deep on his heart. Truth without grace is condemnation, friends. It is not the good news of Jesus. And grace... Without truth, it's enablement. Some of us, some of us are way too gracious to the political candidate we want to support and way too condemning to the one that we disagree with. And we're enabling behaviors in our cultural moment because we want to win an election. And in the meantime, we're losing our witness. And Jesus would say, not so with you. There's a better way. The better way is not grace or truth. The better way isn't connected to an either or world. It's this, that grace and truth together, man, that looks a whole lot like the gospel. Would you agree? Here's the good news of Jesus, grace and truth being played out. Grace is this, God loves you. That's affection. Truth, you're a sinner. We've all fallen short of God's glory and his perfect standard. That's true. But here's grace again. Jesus came on our behalf as an emissary from heaven. God himself lived the life we could not live, died the death we deserve, and defeated death on our behalf so that we would be reconciled to our creator. We need more grace and truth in this moment. High grace, low truth people, they don't criticize or critique their candidate or politics. And if you can't be critical of your candidate, you've made an idol of your politics. Low grace, low truth people, they don't participate in politics and almost wear that as a badge of honor. But let me tell you right now, passivity is not the call of Jesus. Passivity is the gift of those privileged enough to be able to not care. And Jesus, privileged enough to not care about me and you in our painful state of rebellion against him, stepped in and made a difference. It's everyone's job to do that. High truth Low grace people are condemning and critical in their tone. And I want you to know that if you're condemning in your tone, you're creating division in your home. You're creating division in your communities. But high truth, high grace people, say what it is true, but do it in love. And this, this word right here, love, love. Love is the way of Jesus. So here's the bottom line. I want to encourage you this week to always lead with grace. Do you notice that Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Now go live your life free of sin. He starts with grace and then he gives truth. When you don't know what to do in this political climate, when you don't know what to do in the, the, the divisive rhetoric of the day, 
when you don't know what to do, when you begin to get triggered and you see something on the news and you see something in a conversation and things begin to boil up at the dinner room table, always lead with grace. Lead with grace. But never leave out the truth. It's not either or. It is and. So how do we do this? It's what we'll talk about next week. You do not want to miss next week practical tools to help us in our day-to-day relationships. Do this well. But remember, it's not about who wins the election. It's about whether or not we keep our witness in the midst of these times. And it happens when we embrace the better way of grace and, and truth. Would you stand with me as we pray? You know, I'm wondering in the room if there are some people that might have to say, you know, I've, I've been living on other areas on this grid that, that don't look like love. And today I want to invite all of us to have an opportunity to respond to God by praying a prayer of repentance. And that word to repent simply means to turn our way. We've been going one way of passivity, one way of condemnation, one way of enablement, and now we're saying, God, I'm turning back to love. And if that's you today, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer out loud with me. Would you go ahead and bow your heads and online, would you do the same thing as well? Maybe even open your hands if you would say, yeah, God, this is me. I need to surrender the fact that this either or world is consuming me. Would you just repeat this prayer? After me, would you say, Heavenly Father, I agree that I've allowed an either-or world to blur my vision. I have been passive when I should have been engaged. I have been enabling when I should have been willing to learn. I've been condemning when I disagree with my words or simply in my heart. Help me choose the better way. Empower me to live with grace and truth. Remembering I'm simply responding to what you've already done for me. Amen and amen.